All right. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Glad to have you this morning. Glad that you would join us this morning. If there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, we'd love to be able to do that. Come find me or any of the other people you see up front or anybody else that looks like they've Looks like they know that they're supposed to be around here or something like that. So we, we'd love to get to know you. We're friendly people, even though we got masks on, and we would really love to get to know you and help you get connected to the community here. Uh, this morning, we're uh, on the back half of a, a short little series uh, that we've called The Way of the Exile. And uh, normally here at River City, we uh, kind of just t- pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it. Uh, but sometimes it's helpful for us to study various themes that kind of uh, that kind of cover the that are seen over the course of Scripture throughout the throughout the throughout the story of Scripture. And and that's what we're doing in this series. The theme that we're examining, the, the theme that we're trying to take a closer look at this, in, in this series is, is the identity of God's people as exiles. And we began our series a couple of weeks back by taking a look at Jeremiah 29 and 1 Peter 1 and 2. And, and we saw how in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, the Bible not only refers to or, or describes God's people as exiles, but, but rather it highlights the reality that seeing ourselves as exiles is actually uh, crucially important for us understanding and living out our identity and our calling as God's people in the world. In Jeremiah 29, the original audience was, were literal exiles. In their eyes, they had been taken from, the, from their homes in Jerusalem and, and relocated all over ancient Babylon. In, in God's eyes, we saw, however, that he had sent them into the world so that the world might encounter him through his people. In 1 Peter, the label of exile we saw comes up again. And in this case, it's not used to describe uh, people's physical address or their nationality of God's people. It's used to describe the spiritual paradigm through which God's people should always be seeing and looking and relating to the world around them. You see, we're not merely citizens of an earthly kingdom anymore. You see, for God's people, there's a reality that we are citizens of uh, another kingdom, a greater kingdom, uh, a higher kingdom, uh, an eternal kingdom. We're part, we're citizens of God's kingdom. And so as we studied those passages, we saw how having that perspective, having the perspective of an exile, it, it fundamentally shapes the way in which we should think about and relate to and engage with the world because it both causes us to see this world as our temporary home as well as our urgent mission field. You see, this world is not our true home. This is not the end. This is not all that there is. And yet our identity as exiles doesn't call us or cause us to disengage from the world. Instead, it sends us into it as God sent people into the world. And we we talked about how we're not called to live like immigrants who are just trying to assimilate into the world around us, nor are we called to live like uh, uh, tourists who are just passing through. Instead, we're called to see ourselves as foreign ambassadors, God's people sent uh, as representatives of the king who care deeply about the places and the people that we, that we live in because the king that we represent, the king who has sent us, cares far more deeply about them than we ever could. And so the reality is that for God's people, our identity as exiles, it leaves us living in the tension of being a part of two kingdoms at the same time. It leaves us in the midst of this tension of being a part of two kingdoms at the same time. And the reality is this, that's hard to navigate. That, it's difficult. It's not easy because it means living in the kingdoms of this world and yet living distinctly differently from them. 
The first century Christians that Peter was writing to when we saw it a couple weeks ago, they understood that reality all too well. Their allegiance to Jesus as king, their faith in him was fundamentally shaping their attitudes and their actions and their lives in real, actual ways. And in response, they, they suffered shame and discrimination and they were mocked and they were ostracized, not only by their society, but by their families even. And in the midst of of the challenging call to live as God's exiled people in the world, Peter reminds believers of the new family that they have, the new family that they are a part of, the church. And he calls them to be deeply committed to pursuing unity with one another, to value unity, to prioritize it in the church, and to work hard at at bringing it about. Because the reality is that even in the church, Unity is really hard because while we may be united by a common faith in Jesus, we are still very different people. We, we often have different theologicals. We have theological differences. We have philosophical differences. We have political differences. We have differing opinions, of different convictions about education or about health care or about parenting or about which, which sports teams are worth supporting. And just a side note, Minnesota fans, at some point, right, you just got just to gotta say enough is enough, right? Like, at some point, you have to throw in the towel and just say, this is not going anywhere. we got to find a new ship to hitch our, you know, got to find a new train to get her. Anyway, side note, right? That was just 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 because I love you guys, right? Minnesota fans, just because I love you. It's time to try something else. Okay, anyways. <laughs> Yet, in the midst of all of our differences, right, the New Testament, it repeatedly, it emphatically, it calls Christians to be deeply committed to unity. Deeply committed to unity. And what I want to show you this morning as we study a couple of passages in the New Testament here is that the kind of unity that God's people are called to, it's not just for our own good. It's actually a vital part of us living out our calling and our purpose as God's exile missionaries in the world. The kind of unity that God calls his people to is not just for our own good. It is vitally important for us living out our calling and our purpose as God's people in the world. And so with that in mind, I want to pray and we'll dive into God's word together. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. Thankful that you would uh, give us your word so that we might study it and, and through it we might know you. And so God, we just come humbly this morning and we ask that you would speak to us through it. And God, we, we, just, we really need you to do that. We need, I need you to empower me to speak and teach what is right and true and good. God, we need you to enable us to hear and respond rightly to you and to your word. And so we come humbly asking that you would do that. Um, God, that you would create a unified people amongst us. Uh, God, so that the world might know that you are good and that you transform. And so uh, towards that end, God, we ask that you would meet us in our time in your word. For our good, for your great glory, we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I just want to read a couple of different passages this morning, short passages, and and they all have something to show us about what it means, what the scriptures teach us about the unity of the church, the unity of God's people amongst one another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul writes, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. So be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, he says, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. 
For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Again, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, uh, verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy compete by by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. For do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have this mindset. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In the midst of disagreements and conflict within the church, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6 says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude and the mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in John chapter 17, Jesus here praying for all, praying for his disciples and for all who would believe in him, praying for the church, praying for you and me even here. He says, he prays that all of them may, would be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, before we begin, I, I just, I just want to say up front, this is not an intervention sermon. There is not some deep discord happening in our church that I am attempting to uh, address in our sermon this morning. In fact, I think much of what we're going to talk about this morning characterizes our church. By God's grace, I think it does. But unity in the church and unity amongst God's people is something that we should never take for granted. It's, it's not an accident It must be something that we always are intentional and aware of happening in our community. And so as we study God's word, what it has to say about unity and what it means to be unified as God's people living in exile, I just want to highlight three things for us this morning about unity. First, what is it, how to get it, and why it's so important? What is it, how to get it, and why it's so important? Over and over, the New Testament writers, they call the church to pursue unity and so the first question that we need to ask is, what kind of unity are we being called to? You've got to define your terms here, right? Unity can mean a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. And I think it might actually be helpful for us to start with what the Bible is not calling us to, how, how the Bible does not define unity. You see, Christian unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Right? Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Uniformity is when everyone thinks and believes and acts and votes and relates in the exact same way. That's, that's not unity. That's uniformity. Unity is different. You see, unity is about a oneness that characterizes a group of people in the midst of their differences. Unity is about a oneness that characterizes a community of people in the midst of differences. You see, the context of that Romans passage that we, that brief Romans passage that we read is, is that there's this, this church in Rome. It's a pretty cosmopolitan church, and believers were having these significant disagreements about what food they should be eating or abstaining from, and about particular days that they should be celebrating or not celebrating or whatever it was. And, and what we see happening in chapter 14 and 15 of Romans is that 
Paul doesn't pick a side. He doesn't tell them, hey, you guys over here, team A, you're right, I'm on your team, great, let's go with it, right? He doesn't tell them who's right, he doesn't tell them who's wrong. Instead, he calls them in the midst of their differences to make every effort to, lead that, to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. He calls them to ask themselves what they can do to best love and serve one another. The people that they have differences with, the people that they have disagreements with within the church, what can they do to love and serve each other? And that is so counterintuitive to us. See, our default mode is often to make every effort to convince other people that we are right. And that they should be doing things the exact same way that we are doing them. And that they should be thinking and acting in the exact same way that we think and act. And, and Paul says, you know what, maybe, maybe what you think and maybe what you believe, maybe that's right. Maybe that opinion that you have about this secondary issue, maybe that is right. Uh, maybe it's not. And that's not the point. The point is, can you love and serve and sacrifice for others who think differently than you? He tells the church in Rome, that's what Jesus has done for you. When you were far from him, when you thought differently, when you, in fact, were enemies of his, that's when Jesus chose to love and serve and sacrifice for you. Let that shape your realities and your relationships as a community. Additionally, in Ephesians 4, the passage we read highlights the importance of maintaining the unity of the Spirit. But in the following verses, it goes on to highlight the importance and, and even the necessity of diversity in the body of Christ. There's one faith and one body of Christ. There's, there's one gospel message but every member is different. We don't all look alike. We don't all think alike. We don't all act alike. We don't all serve alike. We are different. And those differences, they're not problems, <coughs> nor are they just happy accidents. Those differences are, in fact, an inherent part of the way that God has designed the church to be. And so Christian unity is not primarily about uniformity. It's not the same thing. But, but also Christian unity is, is not, it's not about careless indifference either, Right? Christian unity isn't the result of believers just not having convictions, not having opinions, nor is it the result of Christians not caring what anybody else thinks. Romans 15, and Romans, that passage in Romans 14 and 15, Paul, he tells these believers who are disagreeing in Rome that they should be fully convinced in their own minds about what they think best honors Jesus. It's not that they shouldn't have any thoughts, it's not that they shouldn't have convictions, he says they should be fully convinced in their own minds what they think best honors Jesus. At the end of the chapter 14, he tells them, but instead of heralding their opinions from the rooftops, he says, he tells them, so whatever you believe about these things, you should probably keep that between yourself and God. See, we live in a culture that constantly beckons us to scream our opinions from behind a screen about anything and everything all the time. You should have an opinion about everything. You should have a hot take about everything. You should have a voice about everything. You see, in God's people, should, the, one of the ways that we should be different than the world is that we should be slow to speak. We should recognize that you only get to really have an opinion about a very few things. And the rest just becomes noise. As God's people, it's important for us to think carefully about what it is we want to have opinions about what it is that we want to speak strongly about. You see, the issues dividing the church in Rome and that most often divide the churches now are not first-order issues. They're, they're usually not things that are clear and essential aspects of the Christian faith. 
They're usually secondary things, whether it's theological issues or philosophies of ministry or about matters of wisdom, like how do you relate to the government or how do you educate your children or, or a million other things. And people allow these, these secondary issues to be things that divide us. Over and over in Scripture, calls Christians to be unyieldingly, relentlessly committed to first-order things, to the supremacy of Jesus, to the trustworthiness of Scripture, to the, to the sovereignty of God. But we should not allow the church to be divided along other kinds of issues. And that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be different local churches who hold different views or different opinions, but it does need mean that we need to be careful about what we allow to separate and divide us. And so Christian unity, it's, it's not just about being apathetic or indifferent, and it doesn't mean that we don't have deep convictions. And it just means that we value one another more than we value our own opinions. We value others more than we value our own opinions and convictions. Because we live in a world in which your opinions and your convictions are the highest good. And for anyone, to, for anyone, for any reason, to be told not to express their views or not to herald them from the rooftop feels like oppression. And yet Scripture tells us that that's not what it means to follow Jesus. And that, in fact, if we're going to be unified as a body, we're going to need to think real carefully about the things that matter most to us and the things that we want to speak about. See, the kind of unity the Bible calls the church to isn't, it's not marked by uniformity or indifference. Instead, it is marked by seeing and acknowledging the differences among us and yet still being committed to bearing with one another in the midst of those differences. In Ephesians 4, it tells us that that's going to require humility. It's going to require gentleness. It's going to require patience. Things that are so foreign to the world around us in the everyday stuff of life. See, additionally, Ephesians 2 tells us that bearing with one another isn't merely about tolerating people with different opinions or convictions than you, but about genuinely loving people who are different than you, who hold different views than you, and forgiving one another when we inevitably offend one another instead of just walking away or sticking around but just holding on to grudges or bitterness. Lastly, we see in these passages that Christian unity is marked by intentionality. Ephesians chapter 2, Romans 14, other passages, they use the language to say, make every effort to pursue unity, to pursue peace within the body of Christ. You see, the kind of unity that the Bible calls God's people to, it requires a proactive and an enduring commitment to bearing with one another. You see, our default mode is not to, is to associate with people who think and believe and act just like we do. And to self-righteously look down on others who don't hold the exact same opinions or beliefs. And neither of those things display the kind of unity that God calls his church to. And so we have to be intentional and we have to be deliberate about choosing not just to put ourselves in relationships with people who agree with everything that we think. And we have to be intentional and deliberate about bearing with one another and forgiving one another and pursuing unity and, and pursuing peace. It doesn't happen by accident. But I need you to hear it this morning. Effort is, is not the how of Christian unity. You don't, you don't get unity without intentionality, without effort. But it's not, it's not the linchpin. And so the question is, is, is what is 
How, how do we get the kind of unity that Scripture calls us to? How do we, how do we get that kind of a unity? That, that deep kind of oneness and relational peace happens in the midst of real differences. The passages we read, they highlight that it stems from being united with Jesus. Philippians 2, Paul writes, he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in, in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion then be like-minded, having the same love, be one in spirit, one in mind. Jesus goes on to pray in John chapter 17, we saw, may they be one as you and I are one, Father. May the unity that they have come from the unity they have with us. You see, Christian unity is a result of being united with Jesus. It's a result of being united with Jesus. Ephesians 2 highlights how it's the vertical reconciliation and oneness that we have with God that, that is the thing that enables the horizontal reconciliation and oneness that we have amidst the church. It's what enabled the Jews and the Gentiles who were enemies of one another to become one family and one body in Christ. So the reality is that the gospel, it calls and motivates and empowers the church to pursue unity because the gospel is the proclamation that when we were far from God, when we were at odds with him, when we disagreed with him, that he came in love for us to rescue us and to redeem us so that we might be united with him. See, in unity in the church, it happens when the thing that we are most committed to, the thing that we care most about is that truth and that message. When Jesus is our highest joy and sharing his gospel is our deepest passion. A few years ago, I remember I was, I was uh, asked to be interviewed by a couple of local college students who were trying to talk with a bunch of different pastors in the area about how their congregations viewed a number of current events issues and how those, their views on those things were impacting, impacting their churches. And one of the questions I remember they asked me is they said, to what degree do you think political differences in your church cause division? I just responded honestly with them. I just said, I don't think they are causing divisions in our church right now. And they were pretty surprised. They followed up by asking, is that just because you think everyone has the same opinions, the same political affiliations? And, and I said, no. I know people in our church that hold different opinions about those kinds of things. And, and they were shocked by that. They were shocked by that. They said pretty much every other pastor had told them that not only was there significant political division in their church, but it was causing real problems, real divisions in their, in their congregations. And they asked me, that, they just said, why, why do you think that that's not causing problems in your church? Why, why do you think that that's not causing divisions? I simply said, I think it's because our, our people know that what is most important isn't politics. It isn't their opinions about these other secondary things. I think our people know that, that what we're committed to most is Jesus and people knowing Jesus. That's what matters most to us as a community. And so what happens is these other things, they become secondary things and they become things that we can have different opinions on but that don't divide. And see, and that brings us to the third thing about unity, why it's so important. See, Jesus, he prays for unity in the church, and not just any kind of unity. He prays for a unity that reflects the oneness of the Trinity. You cannot get more unified than the triune God. That this just doesn't happen, right? 
And twice in his prayer, Jesus tells us why he's praying about that. Verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, again, he says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Here's the deal, you guys. Here's what Jesus is is getting at in that prayer. See, when the world sees a community of people who are not the same, who have real meaningful differences among that, and yet who do not overlook those differences, yet, yet people who acknowledge that reality and yet still love and serve each other and still love and serve those who are different than them outside of their community, it reveals something that the, the world simply cannot offer a solution to. <clears throat> you see, unity in the world, it comes by getting rid of anyone who is different than you or thinks differently than you or anyone who disagrees with you or it simply comes by requiring everyone to ignore all of the things that make them different about each other. He said that the gospel is the one thing that enables a group of people who are often wildly different from one another not only to acknowledge those differences but to sacrificially love and serve and prioritize the good of those who are different than them, who think differently than them. That kind of a community, that kind of relationship, it demands an explanation because it's something that only God can bring about in people. And I just want to ask you, does that kind of unity characterize your relationships in the church? Does that kind of unity characterize your relationships in the church? Or, or like the world, are you quick to find those with whom you agree and ignore or look down on those who hold different views than yours? When it comes to theological opinions, are, are you quick to find those who you agree with and to look down on those who hold different views than yours? When you talk about politics, are you quick to have conversations with those who agree with you, but you look down on those who might have differing opinions? When it comes to how you think about educating your kids or whatever it might be, are you, are you quick to align with those who think just like you, to look down on others who might have different opinions? You see, if we can only be at peace with those who are just like us, it is not a demonstration of the gospel. It, in fact, is an indictment that we still need to be transformed by it. See, but here's the good news. See, Jesus died so that his church could be unified in an otherworldly kind of way. Jesus died so that his church could be unified in an otherworldly kind of way. You see, and that's a big part of what we're doing when we're taking communion together. What we're, what we're remembering ourselves, we're reminding ourselves about the gospel, that when we were far from Jesus, when we were enemies of his, he chose to love and serve and come after us. He chose to die for us. And, and remembering his death for us, we are both called and empowered to keep dying to the primacy of our own views and our own opinions. Instead, we're enabled and empowered to love and serve others and pursue a unity in the body in the midst of the differences that we have. It's a love and a unity that comes in response to being unified with God himself so that as Romans 15, 6 writes, that together with one voice we might glorify God. You see, when we take communion, it, it, it's not something that makes you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember Jesus who he is and all that he has done so that we might be united with him, but also so that we might be united with one another, with people who are different than us, 
who think differently than us. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus' life and his death to be the thing that unites you with him and the thing that empowers you to, be, to have a unity with others, even those you might have differences with, then whenever you are ready, in joy and in thankfulness, I'd encourage you, take communion. And if you miss the elements on the way in, then, then they're at the table in the back and you can grab them. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to have trusted in Jesus. But if not yet, if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means for you to have a relationship with him, and if you want to even be a member of his kingdom, then I just want to encourage you, you're welcome here. I encourage you to hold off on taking communion. Instead, unity with him is what you really need. And so, so talk with him about that this morning. As we take communion, as we sing, I'd encourage you all, talk with God. Be honest with him about what's going on in your own heart and ask him to show you what matters most to, to you. Ask him to show you where he might be convicting you about the way in which you hold your opinions or views and the way he might be calling you to, to seek change in that. Ask him to graciously show you where you need to repent of how you think and relate to others who are different than you. And ask him to empower you to turn towards him so that we might be a church that pursues and displays the kind of unity that can only happen when the gospel transforms our hearts and our lives. And so to that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we are so grateful to get to worship you this morning. God, and we just come, uh, we just want to confess that so often uh, our default mode is just to align ourselves and, and, to, and to connect ourselves with people who think just like us. And, and often as well to look down on others who hold different opinions or different views than us about secondary things and and Jesus, we just, we just want to repent of that and turn from that. And God, we want to come with thankful hearts to remember that, that it's your gospel that has united us with you and that empowers us to have a unity in our body and in our church. And so, God, we ask that, that you would be our highest joy, that, that sharing you and proclaiming you would be our deepest passion, that the gospel would be the thing that matters most to us, and so that we would be able to be a church that, that is unified together around that message and who is able and enabled to have different views on other things. Help us to be a kind of people that reflects the transforming power of the gospel in the way that we have unity amongst one another. God, for our good, for your great glory in the world, we ask it. Amen.